1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Philip Henscher on his latest novel, A Small Revolution in Germany. Philip Hensher has written 11 novels, including the Booker shortlisted The Northern Clemency, King of the Badgers, Scenes from an Early Life, which won the Ondaatje Prize in 2012, and The Friendly Ones, which you may remember we spoke about on, I think it was the 500th Little Atoms. He's Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Bath Spa, and Philip's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is A Small Revolution in Germany. Philip, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you, dear. How would you describe this one first of all?
2: Well, it's a story about um about growing up and it's about politicians really. It's about the sort of um, the small agreements that we make with our fate as we get older. It's so easy to kind of believe things passionately when you're 17, and then you grow a little bit old and think, well, that's not really going to work. And I've got to, I've, got to do, I've got to get a job. I've got to live in society. All that kind of idealism really kind of starts to drift off. And I've always been quite interested by the ways in which we feel about our former you know passionate beliefs and i thought i would write a i i would write a novel that's well it's it was really inspired by meeting some people that i'd known 30 or 35 years ago who really hadn't changed the sort of radical, um, idealistic beliefs that they had then, and I sort of walked round them. I was absolutely fascinated to see what it's like to, you know, stick to your principles for for decades. Really, because I, I don't think um, I don't think it happens to anybody else at all. So it was really about. Um, just about kind of getting older and um, what you think you believe changes or in very rare cases it doesn't change but the world is always going to change around you that's the thing
1: and in terms of why now or i guess the period of time when you were when you were writing this novel because the world that our narrator spike who we're going to talk about in a minute comes from Ten years ago it would have just been completely esoteric and probably wouldn 't have occurred to anybody to write about, but of course, then there was Corbin and i guess
2: well yes i I guess so uh, i mean I, I suppose i mean it doesn't really, the, the book is uh, the book is about kind of uh, far left uh, radicals in the, the the 1980s and what happens to them. It was certainly something that became a little bit more. Urgent, and we became much more we probably became much more aware of these people through social media suddenly they had you know they had a a, a platform suddenly we could see what they were talking about and what they believed and how how they behaved but um, i'm quite um, i'm quite sympathetic towards um, towards these people really um i think that i think we we kind of need to engage with these people i'm not really sure what the initial impetus for for writing this book was i mean it wasn't really to to prove a point or or anything like that and i'm not really sure um what i think at the end of writing writing the book which is you know always um, is always the 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 Case and I don't really know, you know, whether we're supposed to be on one side or another. I I guess my. I guess my feeling is that um, too much, um, you know, it's not it's not ideal to completely sell out those um, those youthful, um, youthful youthful idealistic beliefs. But it's not so it's not such a great idea to stick to them um, either. The I guess you know, looking at this generation emerging that really believes in kind of the impossible ideal again, did spark me off a. a a little bit I think you know 15 years ago that kind of idealism wasn't quite so um, noisy and uh, as prominent as it uh, as it is uh, is now and certainly kind of looking at people like Greta Thunberg reminded me of all sorts of things about kind of what what I was like when I was uh, 16.
1: So let's talk about Spike then our narrator um, who is he what sort of world does he come from?
2: well he's a he's clever i think that's the one of the the main things about him but he doesn't know, quite know why or, or what to do with this um, with this intelligence he's um he comes from quite a kind of um, dysfunctional family and the book really starts when he's uh, when he's 16 and he just comes across some very kind of committed people who really kind of believe passionately in putting the world to rights, really. And I think once he gets into this place and he meets a very remarkable man, he sort of clings to that. He's, he, he really needs, you know, it's, it's that paradoxical position that he both needs, he thinks he wants to change everything around him but in fact he really wants to cling to what he has even though what he has is not really that um that that substantial so it's he's a i i i liked him i thought i, I sometimes sometimes when you're writing a book in somebody's voice you're interested by them but you're not necessarily sure that you like them but um but spike there was lots about spike that i actually really did like
1: so he's growing up in the in the early 80s um, it's unnamed but it's um mm. it's obviously Sheffield which is yeah, your probably. own yeah. hometown. So what are your memories of this was you know the time of the early 80s so Margaret Thatcher mm. was in the ascendance, you know the era, era of the Falklands war and the miners strike were just mm. either just happening or or about to happen. What was your memory of these type of Marxist, Spartacist.
2: Well, the, I mean, the Spartacists, they were a, you know, they were a real, they were a real group and there were all sorts of, um, there were all sorts of little, far left um groups just um um just operating in their own way they used to you know ha- have these um, um small scale hand printed um newspapers or free sheets or whatever they would stand on the uh, on the, the steps of uh, sheffield city libraries uh, uh, selling copies and re- really engaging in political argument with anybody who came along and you know when i was uh, when I was sixteen, they were an object of real fascination to me. They seemed so kind of knowledgeable. They seemed to understand how the um, the world really was, and to offer an explanation. The Spartacists were quite extreme even by the standards of um, of the time and they some of them um, actually believed for instance that they should um, they should actually uh, that a nuclear war would not be a bad idea <laughs> whether because I think I think ultimately because they thought that you know mass destruction would destroy capitalist society and then some kind of workers paradise could arise from the ashes or something like that certainly they very strongly believed in the right of the Soviet Union to defend itself by any means uh, by any means necessary, so they did used to go along and um, uh, break up CND meetings, which uh, which they do in the book. And uh, the thing that I I rather liked about them at the time was that you know before. Before social media, before, you know, all this connectivity, you could say anything you liked, really, you know, however, however outrageous an opinion was, and it wouldn't get that far. So people were much much freer, I think, then to play with extreme ideas and extreme propositions. Um, it seemed like a very kind of exciting kind of um, uh, melting pot, really of a melting pot of of ideas you never knew what somebody was going to say quite seriously next and you know and they and you know just embark on some argument with you that might last for hours or days
1: tell us about some of the other characters in the in the small group that spike becomes fascinated mm-hmm. with then um, percy ogden um mm. James Frinton and Tracy Cartwright particularly I'd like to I'd like to say something about.
2: One of the things that I've noticed in life is that very intelligent and remarkable people, they never really come singly. They always come in Kind of groups of that have kind of egged each other on and encouraged each other from early on. And Percy Ogden is uh, is a boy who a boy at school who is is very authoritative. He has absolutely no respect for for authority at all. And that was uh, that was taken from a friend of mine at school who. Um, did pretty well exactly what percy Ogden does in the book that um, i've to the sort of school that um, occasionally recruitment officers from the army would come along and and uh, tell you all about the wonderfulness of the the army and uh, at the end of it, the the talk um, my friend stood up and said uh, how can you reconcile your conscience with working for an imperialist fascist organization <laughs> so it was very much uh, like that percy Ogden sort of um, doesn't fulfill his potential, let's say, you know, he ends up uh, pontificating in, uh, in in newspapers, he'd really like to be running the world. James Frinton is a kind of odd one. Uh, he's, um, he's much more, he's much, he's sort of isolated from the, the rest of the group in a way. And he really does become something what he wants to achieve. He doesn't really share with the others. And then there's poor Tracy. Tracy is um the the girl who is just passionate about everything really um she just she just loves being in this group she loves ideas but she loves the argument she loves people and she comes to she she goes on a particular um a particular journey that uh, doesn't end particularly well
1: and i guess the first stage of of this group starting to sort of turn their back on their, their former idealism and, and, you know, make compromises with the future is a number of them are together at Oxford. And I mean, I know you've you've written about your own experiences there about the, you know, the whole idea of going and having this opportunity to reinvent yourself as yes. a different person. But there's also, I guess, not only the, you know, the personal option to, to decide to become somebody else, but also I guess there's this idea of oxbridge as a sort of factory for training the the next generation of of the ruling classes so i guess there's mm. there's there's a way there as well in which the sort of in some ways the eccentricities of these characters are knocked out of them through that process
2: well uh, maybe though you know the um you know there was a an eccentricity within the 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 process of becoming a uh, the next generation of ruling classes. I don't know whether it's always like uh, like that at uh, at Oxford, but it was certainly very much like that when uh, when I was there. There was a sense that you know the this political this political debate was going to produce prime ministers. Um, and it did you know uh, Boris was in my year uh, Boris was a very kind of um, uh, conspicuous conspicuous figure in Oxford at the at the time everybody knew who who he was i think that the i mean the the, the, the what seemed, seems to be happening to to most people when they go to university is that they have most people have left the people that know about their history behind and for once you could do or say anything you like without any kind of consequences particularly you know in in at that time i knew all sorts of people who would turn up and Actually, they, they would change their names or, you know, start to talk in a completely different way or actually, you know, um, just um, change their entire kind of political philosophy. And people sort of accepted it. I mean, it was, of course, people would sometimes laugh about it, but it was a time of kind of radical reinvention in all sorts of ways.
1: This is little atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Philip Hensher, and we're talking about his latest novel, A Small Revolution in Germany. And Philip, earlier on, you talked about how much you like Spike as as a character, and there's a theme in the book about you know the idea of compromise, not changing one's um, you know idealism and how unusual that is. And I've been interested to see... I want to talk about the sort of reception to the book, because it seems to me it depends on who is reading it, who is reviewing it, as to how they see that sort of passage. And Spike himself talks in the book about whether or not he might have, have wasted his life, and certainly the other characters around him achieve in different degrees different degrees of of material success they often have to compromise quite severely in some cases to achieve that whereas spike himself while he hasn't changed his ideas he's you know he has a perfectly solid job and more importantly he's made a a lifelong commitment to the love of his life which seems to be an absolutely successful life
2: Yes, I think so. Yes. Well, it was. I mean, the the reviews that uh, that I read. Um, they, I mean, some of them seemed to think that it was their job to decide whether they were on Spike's side or not, or whether the whether they should be supporting Spike in his decision or or actually. Um, you know, den- or denouncing him, and I didn't really see that as um, as my job at all. I don't really see. I didn't really see. I don't really know whether I think that Spike did the the right thing because you know how would you how would you say that about um, about you know your even your closest and dearest friends? It was it's a sort of um, it's a sort of journey that he goes on. That it is a, a possible journey to go on, and I just wanted to show really what the consequences of that might be. Uh, for an individual or human being
1: there's a couple of significant trips in the book to east germany as it was and then much later on the mm-hmm. the former east germany we'll talk about the the later trip later on and i i know in the last couple of years you've you've traveled yourself quite extensively in in mm-hmm. that sort of area um the central trip to the the former east germany well, while it was still um under the um well it was still the DDR. Um and there are some significant events that, that happen in Spike's life on this trip. Did you ever visit at that time yourself?
2: Yes I did, yes.
1: Yeah, so I was gonna ask you about researching that, that that part of the trip, but tell us your own recollections of, of well, visiting the DDR.
2: Well, it was. It's something that I I really wish now that I'd done more of while it was there. But of course, you don't realise that at the time that this is going to to disappear. I think the the thing that um, um, is is sort of difficult to it's, it's it's quite difficult to remember because of course people have talked about it to me so much afterwards. You know, the it's quite it's quite difficult to separate now my kind of uh, immediate kind of impressions of being in the the DDR in the late eighties from the kind of explanations that have have kind of followed in really large amounts. I think what I I, I really do have a very strong um, impression of was the utter transformation of everything when you went from one side of the border to the other. What what it looked like, what it smelt like, the way people related to you, the food and the kind of practicalities and actually the sort of speed of everything, really. That's my that's my overwhelming sense that it was it just seemed it just seemed somewhere that things were happening much more slowly and somehow much more Sparsely, but the explanations of why that was—I remember being kind of puzzled by these uh, by these places at the time. And such kind of—and there's been such floods of explanation of what it was like to live to live there to experience it. But I'm not sure that I really kind of uh, I really know how to 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 talk about it anymore. It was certainly very kind of um, challenging place In ways that were quite difficult to pin down. You know, why is why do I find it so kind of um, um, difficult? Just kind of walking down a street and looking at uh, uh, buildings, it just seemed it, it just seemed impossible to explain. But I know that everyone that uh, everyone that I travelled there with felt uh, felt quite similar.
1: And so, what was it like to revisit it many years later?
2: Well, it was wonderful because, of course, you could switch it off. <laughs> No, it was, uh, it was absolutely, it it was, it was really tremendous. And actually, to, and I've gone, I've gone back to, you know, those, those parts of Germany a lot since. And, it is a kind of an, an evocative experience, and trying to, you know, trying to get back this completely lost, these completely lost sense of what it what it was like. So, I, you know, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. And there's, you know, the the the, the research for it, such that uh, such that it was was um, was really kind of uh, richly enjoyable. But as I say, you know, you can. Switch it off and uh, and walk away from it if it's uh, you know if you're writing a book about it.
1: And so, did you visit the the former border area that that Spike takes a, a sort of walking trip along in yeah. the book?
2: I did. I, I did. You know, it did recently in five years. I don't think you'd have been. You wouldn't have been allowed anywhere near it then. The the part of, of Germany that they uh, that they go to the um, the Harz Mountains, the um, the Brocken, the big uh, the big mountain or ish mountains about a thousand meters high that was only opened up to the uh, to the public after the fall of the fall of the wall um and it was um it, it's a it's a tragic thing because it's absolutely central to german culture there's uh, one of, one of the acts of faust part two goethe's faust is set there, and I've been told—I don't know whether it's true—but the um, the, night that, um, the night that the night the wall fell, a um, hundred thousand people walked up the Brocken. So it was—it uh, it, it its an extraordinary part of uh, part of Germany. It's not much visited by by foreigners, and certainly that uh, that bit of the uh, the border that is kind of preserved, and you can walk along the um, where the wall ran. Is one of the the most magical bits of um, one of the most magical bits of of countryside now, with the, you know the occasional um, the occasional kind of reminiscence of uh, of the DDR, like a watchtower. It's uh, it's a very very strange and uh, evocative place.
1: To finish it off, then can I get you to read a bit?
2: Of course. Well, I think I might. Um, I think I might read the bit where Spike meets. Uh, Joaquin for the, um, uh, for the first time. And it's really um, it's a really kind of love of first sight, I, think. I, um, I did uh, I did enjoy uh, Joaquin. Would you ever go back to Chile? I said. I could see Joaquin at the head of an army of widows, orphans, exiles, revolutionaries, standing in a hurtling jeep in the hot sun, hurtling under arches of white bougainvillea and hibiscus, his arms outspread in acknowledgement and welcome. Chilly? No, Joaquin said, bright with hilarity. That is over for me. Someone else can deal with it. Put it right. What I have to do is here and now. You know what I mean? What astonished me was to discover that Joaquin and I were exactly the same height. He had seemed so big and so physically substantial with bone and hard flesh. I hardly knew how to place myself in relation to that physical scale. It was only now that I discovered our faces were in the same place, exactly level, six feet above the concrete floor of the balcony, where marigolds, scarlet geraniums, marijuana plants, purple, pink, aquamarine and yellow snapdragons sat in pots one warm evening within the all-including rich masculine smell of Joaquin, the revolutionary. Joaquin's kiss when it came was a fact of inevitable nature, like a warm front predicted on the news bulletin and then experienced without surprise, recognised rather, a fact quite external to our characters. I had no idea, or not much, that it was in me to kiss a 22-year-old Chilean Spartacist until it was actually happening. And once it started, I had a moment of shock, almost alarm, that I am a male and I am being kissed by another male before a more certain and individual sense that I was meant to be kissed like this, with the solid arms around my back and shoulders, the thick trunk of the tongue in my mouth, pushing back at my own tongue, rough rub of Joaquin's face against mine, and I knew my right hand gripping the short curly hair on the flat back of Joaquin's head. His odour was all around me. I closed my eyes and was within it, I had kissed girls before, but I had never, it now seemed, been kissed. Everything in the world that was soft and tentative, pink, blushing and yielding, was gone from my life in a moment. I had no idea where I found myself in this new world of definite statements and solid certainty. I had no idea where I was. From now on, I resolved to devote my life to the liberation of the urban proletariat." Joaquin pulled back for a moment, his arms still around me. His beautiful face was filled with laughter and amused joy. The way you were looking at me, he said, and he plunged once more at my face.
1: I've been talking to Philip Hensher. We've been talking about his latest novel, A Small Revolution in Germany, which is out now from Fourth Estate in the UK. Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you, Neil.